the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, who is it that our culture holds up as representatives of Christianity? And then we're joined by Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. One more show to do before my co-host Aubrey Sampson comes back from vacation. She'll be again with us on Monday. But it's been a great week of shows. Uh, A little tired today. I'm guessing others of you are because did you stay up and kind of take in that White Sox game last night? It wasn't just any White Sox game. And if you were with us yesterday, you know I opened the show talking about my love for the Field of Dreams, for the movie Field of Dreams. And last night, the White Sox and Yankees played a game at the Field of Dreams Park out in Dyersville, Iowa. And I think it left a lot of us going, Ugh, how's this going to be? Is this going to be okay? It was spectacular. I mean, it was really unbelievable to watch on TV. I, I, if anyone was there, we had a couple friends who were able to go. I can't imagine what it must have been like, but just kind of everything we talked about at the beginning of yesterday's show about I, why I think that movie resonates, I believe resonated through that game yesterday, the, uh, the, the history of baseball and fathers and sons and just the beauty of what we were able to see last night. And of course, it was just one of the most exciting games of the year as the White Sox were winning, gave up two two-run homers in the top of the ninth that looked like they were going to uh, lose a heartbreaker. And then Tim Anderson, kind of the backbone of the White Sox, hits a two-run walk-off homer, fireworks going off. Just an unbelievable game. Uh, and I wanted to start there after we talked about it yesterday. Like, here's this is what baseball does. Listen to this stat. Uh, Tim Anderson last night hit the 15th walk-off homer ever hit by a White Sox player against the Yankees. The first one to do it on July 20th, 1919, Shoeless Joe Jackson, of whom much uh, is one of the main characters of Field of Dreams. I mean, that you can't write that. That's a if somebody put that script out there, you'd be like, that is just too cheesy, too cheesy. But that's what we get sometimes, and we got it last night. Uh, it's why we love sports. It's why we love these kind of movies. It really does make you feel good. I just kept watching the game, and you know, my wife not a huge fan of you know, sitting and watching baseball, she'll do it. But I kept telling her, look at these pictures. And you'd look up and the sunset over Iowa and such. I can't imagine how many people are not only uh, downloading and watching Field of Dreams today, but how many people are planning trips to go out and visit. This is going to be quite the boom for Dyersville, Iowa and Field of Dreams. So thought we'd start there just because kind of talked so poetically about it, so lovingly about it yesterday. And it delivered beyond the wildest dreams last night. Really fun game to watch. Really exciting game to watch. Uh, The White Sox and Yankees will be off today, and they will pick up their series at guaranteed right field tomorrow night. Uh, And we'll see if it it, uh, delivers some more uh, theatrics and some more uh, fireworks, if you will. Well, anyway, I wanted to also then talk about uh, an article Ed Stetzer wrote at Religion News um, where he got pushback from some of the people he talks about. And he talks about Sean Foyt. Uh, Sean Foyt, you might remember the name, is the guy from, I believe, Bethel, who was going around and doing worship concerts during the pandemic, during Black Lives Matter uh, protests, all sorts of stuff, uh, and got a lot of publicity, a lot of pushback. Uh, people saying, and then also Greg Locke. Greg Locke is that far right wing pastor down in Tennessee who you will often see now just saying what I think are just crazy things, kind of screaming, uh, very always about the liberals and the left and this and that. Uh, and so Ed Stetzer wrote an article that I found really interesting because I think it gets at the heart of this question of who does our, who does our culture see as representative of Christianity? Uh, Stetzer's article is titled, Foyt, Locke, and the like are a sideshow, 
Quit letting them distract you. He says, since both are quick to cite their First Amendment rights, I'm going to use mine now to call Christians to a better way and implore the media to resist making them representative of the Christian faith. They are not. And I thought this was an interesting thing. Stetzer is going to use most of the article to talk about the need to instead have Christians uh, and that many, you know, 99% of Christians out there, maybe less than that, but most Christians out there are living out the love your neighbor call that in the midst of a pandemic, uh, Stetzer wants to argue, and you may disagree with this, but Stetzer wants to argue that, uh, that, that we need to be, um, you know, getting vaccinated and loving our neighbors and watching out for those and, and not just kind of yelling all the time. And we talk about this on this show that, uh, that we as Christians have a higher bar, I think, of how we are to act and react in this kind of setting and this time right now. Uh, but I, but I think it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, uh, who does our culture as a whole hold up as representative of Christianity? And I do think Ed is onto something here that people like Sean Foyt, people like Greg Locke, uh, to think about a, a decade or two. No, not even maybe a decade ago. I know they're still around, but you think about all of the stuff that was going on with Westboro Baptist Church, and you thought you would have thought they were the biggest church in the world. How much attention they got, but instead, and then you read the articles, and there are fifty people in that church, but they were always out there uh, getting um, a lot of attention. You think about Joel Osteen or. Uh, a generation ago, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and people like that. Uh, those are oftentimes the people held up as representative of Christianity. And that can, I find that really frustrating because I, I don't believe the things that many of those people are doing or saying. And then our culture as a whole hears that I'm a pastor or we're Christians. They go, well, that must be what you think. And I'm going, no. Don't lump me in there, but the answer isn't to yell louder, but the answer is to love more and continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus, continue to live out the gospel. Ed Stetzer ends the article this way. He says, the question for pastors, church leaders, and the entire Christian church is simple. Do we want to be known for love that reflects our Savior or known for a sideshow demanding its rights? You can't scream at the world and reach the world at the same time, he says. Showing Christ's love for the good of our neighbors, even when it's uncomfortable and sacrificial, that's what it means to have faith over, over fear. That's what it means to have faith over fear. And that idea, you can't scream at the world and at the same time reach the world, is one of those tensions that I think Christians, I know myself, we struggle with. How do we stand up for truth? How do we say, no, that's wrong? How do we do this while at the same time loving and reaching the world? That's kind of the tension we live in. It again says you can't scream at the world and reach the world at the same time. So who are the representatives uh, that our culture holds up of, as Christianity? And I think the more important question for each of us to ask is, who are the representatives that like my neighbors hold up? Like what would my neighbors say is a picture of Christianity. What would my co, what would your coworkers say or whatever else? I think a challenging question as we get started here. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by one of the friends of our show, Bob Smetana. He is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. All sorts of things to talk to Bob about. And he just released a story today about Ravi Zacharias Ministries and somebody who worked there and the continuing fallout from all that's going on there at Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Also, some things on that David Platt story. We're going to shoot to many directions with Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service, next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. I am thrilled to be joined uh, by a friend of the show, veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. That's Bob Smetana. Bob, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. Hey, before we uh, let's start with the hard hitting stuff today. Did you what would you think of the Field of Dreams game last night, the White Sox game last night? Well, I thought it was great. I, I only got to watch a little bit because our internet was out because we've had bad weather here. But it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch the to see the field and then like the beautiful sky and then all that corn around it. That was just yes. awesome. 
Yeah, they did it perfectly, and they yeah. couldn't have had a better day for it. <laughs> so, like, just it was like somebody who just painted it. And uh, yeah, I know you're a baseball fan. By the way, we won't talk about this, but I'm a Mets fan. You're a Red Sox fan. I feel like it's our two teams that are kind of tanking here in the second. I know half. it's not going. So, <laughs> I watched the. It was no, it's not so good. But still, they're better than last year. Last year, That's our right. team. I don't know if the Mets are. Bad last year. The Red Sox were so awful last year. Yes, yes, the Mets were bad, but yes, it's it's painful. It's painful to watch. Okay, yes. uh, Bob, you had a, a new article drop just today uh, at Religion News Service, and it's it, it continues kind of the story of Ravi Zacharias Ministries, uh, and you talk specifically about a a woman uh, who worked for him. Could you tell us that story and why this continues to be an important story? Sure. So we, we, um, yeah, we did a long profile today about Ruth Mahotra, who is the, she was the longtime spokesperson for Ravi Zacharias. She was actually a longtime family friend. Um, and she worked there about eight years. She was the person out, you know, building their Facebook page, promoting his message for a long time. And then I think, uh, when she, you know, and, and when he said he had not done anything wrong, she believed him. And promoted that message. And then I think at some point realized, oh, no, I've been promoting someone who's abusive and there's a problem mm-hmm. here. And then I tried to make amends for that. And that it did not uh, that did not go well for her. So she yeah. tried very hard, I think. And I think really feels responsible for her role in protecting someone who was not who they thought he was. Yeah. And so, what was the what was the result in her life? What was and continues to be the result in her life? Well, so she was she was uh, suspended several times at, at, the, at, at work for asking too many questions. She was actually just fired uh, last month. Mm. Um, and so and then, uh, they had like go oh, a whole bunch of people. But she was you know, she was kind of labeled as in, in her. She was suspended first the second time and people labeled her as unsafe uh, in part because she was asking a lot of questions. And I think. Uh, there are questions of, you know, why is she being removed when people who were in positions of mm. to, you know, oversee her, like the board and other senior leadership who who had signs there were things wrong with Zacharias and didn't do anything. Why why is she gone and they are still around? Mm. Yeah, that is a uh, that is a sobering, a really good question. Yeah. There was another article about a class action lawsuit claiming that Ravi Zacharias Ministries misled donors, covered up abuse. This feels like an important story now that the money is actually there's there's yeah. an actual suit going on. So, again, I'd love to just ask you, help our people understand this and why this is an important uh, next step. So, yeah, this is important. This is actually it's a, a, a couple. One of them is actually a player for the uh, Oakland Raiders. Mm. They were donors. They donated after the. Uh, so if you if you if you. Just to kind of sum up this the situation, uh, in 2017, uh, uh, Zacharias sued a woman named Lori Ann Thompson. Her husband had been a big supporter of the organization. Um, they had be, she had met Zacharias. They had emailed a bunch, and she, he she ended up sending him nude photos. And she really felt uh, she accused him of manipulating her. Uh, and there are some emails from him where he's. Like, don't tell anyone what we're doing, and you know, my I will take you know, end my life if you uh, if you tell anyone. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so there there are emails showing him uh, taking a role in in what he knew he he thought was a uh, an inappropriate relationship, and she really feels like you know he groomed her and made friends with her, and then uh, um, manipulated her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so. Um, that came out in 2017. He sued her, uh, ended up settling and paying paying uh, uh, Lori and her husband $250,000. They have an NDA, so they can't talk about the details of their experience. That's still in place. With um, But what happened then is the organization really said there was you know nothing to this. This is all their fault. He was, he was the victim here. Um, and that stayed in really place until uh, – till t- Till he died in 2020, and in fact, his when if you look at the New York Times obituary of Robbie Zacharias, there is no mention of the uh, Thompson issue. Mm. It sort of disappeared until a few months later. Uh, some women Zacharias had co-owned a couple spas, and uh, some massage therapists who worked there came forward later and said, "You know, we he would sexually abuse us. He uh, 
pressured us. He was our boss and pressured us into providing sexual favors. And that really, uh, Christianity Today ended up investigating that. And that really, uh, the, then RZIM uh, did an investigation which found that those, those allegations were accurate. Mm. So, you know, I think what's happened there is that's background for the suit. So the, this, this couple gave money to Zacharias, to RZIM in 2020 after the Thompson issue, uh, before the spa thing, but they were like, oh, he's a great Christian leader. And so they felt like they were lied to. And the, the RZIM board has said they missed, they should have investigated the allegations. They should have done more. And so now the, there's a class, going to be a class action so saying, wait, not only they should have done more, that you told us that you were trustworthy and you weren't. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a big picture question here. Uh, you know, you got the Ravi Zacharias stuff that keeps coming out, or I think of like the wildly popular podcast right now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later because I'm kind of obsessed with it. Uh, but why is it important in your opinion to keep telling these stories? Because I could see people going, he's dead. Let's move on. Let's not worry about these. It's just smearing Christianity. Uh, obviously, we talk about these. So while the show, we think these are important. But how would you answer that from maybe somebody who thinks, let's just move on and stop talking about this? I would say that that is exactly what groups do. They say move on. I think that one of the things that uh, Ruth Mahalcher told us is that when the spa allegations came up, they said, you know, when it was Lorianne Thompson, it was he said, she said. Now it's she said he's dead. It's mm. like he's dead. You're hurting the kingdom. And I think we are divided. And so I think because the country is divided and we only we think people that we don't like are bad and people we do like are good that keeps us from that that is used by people who are abusive to retain their power so people use good things done for the church or for the kingdom as uh, justification for allowing uh, abusive behavior that's right and and there's nothing and so you know if you look in the Bible there's nothing in the Bible that would make you think God is Concerned about protecting God's, you know, his reputation. There's nothing in there. Uh, I was talking with someone recently about this, and basically they said, you know, God does not partake in religious cover-ups. Mm. And I think that's very, that's, that's a good way of putting it. So that th these are, and, and you know, no one, no one wants to report about these stories. Exactly. But I, I think it's important to say, if this thing happened, then it happened and we need to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, because we hear it every now and then. People are like, all right, and like, let's just kind of move on. But I think they are super important to talk about. Bob Smetana is veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. Bob, back in uh, mid to late July, there was this crazy story, and Aubrey and I talked about it, this story of David Platt and McLean Bible Church. And uh, it kind of encapsulated everything that's going on culturally now. You know, there were charges of wokeness and, and critical race theory. But a lot of us from the outside are going, David Platt is is a lot of things. Quote, unquote, woke is probably not one of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, David Platt, writer of the book Radical. Uh, could you help people understand the story? You wrote about the story. So what is the story of David Platt and McLean Bible Church, and why did it get so much press? So there's a couple things going on. So McLean Bible Church is a very big church outside of D.C., very influential. It's often had a lot of uh, GOP leaders there and conservative Christians in the D.C. area went there. Uh, Lon Solomon is a former pastor, very well-known. Uh, David Platt is very well-known. David Platt used to be, uh, he's as you said, he's the... the um, author of Radical. He was at the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Before that, he was at a megachurch outside Birmingham. Um, very influential pastor as well. And then I think the third thing is this whole question of wokeness. And mm -hmm. one of the things that's really interesting is that now, um, because the country is so divided, that and because really kind of post-George Floyd, there's been a lot more attention on the country's uh, the ongoing fallout from the racism of the past, right? The, mm -hmm. the, you know, Jim Crow and slavery and what we've seen is continued uh, repercussions from that. I think now that people are talking a lot more about it, there is this pushback to, uh, so anyone who quotes, so 
you know, David Platt would quote the Bible and say, you know, there are things we still need to do. And that has become labeled as critical race theory. And so mm-hmm. then it's become labeled as communism. It's very similar to, I don't know if you remember several years ago, back in the during the Obama administration, so this is about 10 years ago, that everyone was concerned about radical Islam. Radical Islam is taking over the country. Mm-hmm. Most, you know, so there was a big push against having mosques or anything. So there's a lot of the same messaging of, uh, here's a takeover going to ruin the country. And so, the, the, you know, people are betraying us. So there's that part of it. I think uh, what happened there is you have a pastor at a, uh, this is a, so someone put it this way. McLean Bible Church is the megachurch David Platt did not start. So mm-hmm. I think he took some of the techniques he had at a church he had been a pastor at previously and, and brought them here. And there are folks here who that I think he made changes too fast. So there's part of that. Yeah. He was trying yeah. to make changes very fast. And I think the changes very fast when you're a new pastor uh, are difficult. I think David had had problems, some problems in the same situation at the IMB in, in that his implementing the leadership vision he had had been, pro- had been difficult. So there are probably some leadership problems in that. Mm. David's a great preacher That's and right. a beloved preacher. He may not be the best institutional leader. So there's part of that. I think you also you have people who are just unhappy. I mean, the, the bigger, bigger thing here is that America is changing. It's not the America it was 30 years ago. Uh, ethnically, it's changed. Uh, socially, it's changed. And I think what we have are, as you become more diverse, people are looking back and saying, wait, when white Christians who were in charge of the country there are a lot of good things happen, but there are things of that tenure of leadership that didn't go so well. And when you're a minority in the country, you don't get to say that. And then when you get to a large enough group of people, you get to say, okay, now that we have a seat at the table, we're going to have to talk about some things that we haven't talked about, and we're going to have to look forward. And that's very difficult. And yeah. give COVID and economic, you know, the economic downturn from 10 years ago and everything else in the world, it's we're all very tense. And so to have these conversations. So even a great leader at McLean would have had issues because he's talking about difficult things. Mm. And if, even if, if but doing it during a pandemic, during a uh, contested election. So anyway, the, all I have to say is they, they had, um, what happened there is they had an elder election. They thought it was going to be great. And then the elder election failed. And I don't think the leadership knew what to do. And part of it was there were these all these accusations about CRT and a, a takeover of the church. But I think it also showed that, um, at least in some people, a distrust of institutional leaders. So that's one of the things going on now, too, is that if you're – we saw this at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. If you're a leader of a big religious institution or you're any institution in the country right now, people who used to give you a pass and go along are not. They're not going to go along. And so you're going to have to say, oh, wait, I have to listen to people and I'm going to have to figure out how to resolve conflict. That's kind of a long answer, but it's really. Yeah, it's fascinating. David, you know, but also there is a whole group. There are a whole group of people who think that David Platt and J.D. Greer and Matt Chandler and anyone who is speaking about Ray Russell Moore, anyone who's any white Christian leader who's talking about race has become woke and as a communist and is betraying us. Yeah. And so what would you uh, advise pastors, church leaders to do? Do you avoid talking about it or do you just say, hey, the Bible says this and I'm going to put up with the division? What would you do? Oh, that's a no, that's a million dollar question. I think one thing is that I think you just, the pastors need to be aware that of the demographic changes in the country, of the, all the changes around us. I'm actually working on a book about this. You know, oh, good. And, and good. then also I would think to realize that the world has changed around them, and every answer is not a relig- spiritual answer. You can't preach your way out of these things. Mm-hmm. There are institutional changes that that you're going to have to work harder on trust. You're going to have to work harder on uh, also addressing things that are are what is you know identifying what is true and what's not. I think um, I just moved from Tennessee. The governor of Tennessee had to do this. He's being accused of setting up quarantine camps, you know, and putting vaccines in the food chain to vaccine wow. and it, he had a you know this is a very conservative governor in a very conservative state it's like no so just to say because i think one of the things that we have to realize is that there's a lot of benefit mm. in spreading information that's not true that's true and there are people who know better who are benefiting from doing that 
And there are a lot of folks who are good. You know, that you can't follow every news thing. You can't know everything. So you, you rely on people you trust. And there are people who are being misled by people they trust. Yeah. And I think if you're pastors to say, okay, I'm going to speak the truth, but also know that my people aren't the enemy. I think that's a little bit of what happened with Platt. If he's got a speech where he's talking about the people trying to take over the the, the church and mm-hmm. labeling an us versus them. And I think an us versus them, uh, if you're the pastor, your job is to lead and to educate yeah. and to uh, pastor people. And that can mean telling the truth, but it can also mean, um, you know, if we look at the, the, I don't know if you've looked, I think you have been listening to the big Mars Hill podcast. That's right. What, what happened oh, yeah. there is people who opposed Mark Driscoll were labeled as the enemy. And I think even a, a pastor who is a good pastor can be tempted to think, oh, if you're against me, you're against God. That's right. And That's right. that is, uh, it's very difficult to be the leader and say, okay, to love the people that oppose you and to teach truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a good book, man. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) I'm I'm excited for the new book. Bob Smetana, he is veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. Again, such good stuff he writes. Go to religionnews.com. That's religionnews.com. Follow him on Twitter at Bob Smetana. That's at Bob Smetana. Bob, always enjoyable for us. Thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, so glad to hear you, Brian. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I've shared often that I tend to be somewhat of a uh, an anxious person, and not in general, but uh, but when uh, I, I, I'm a senior pastor, I'm a lead pastor of a church, but I'm not sure that I'm actually uh, a I'm not one of those type A leaders who's like, hey, let's just go. And so when there's criticism, when there is pushback, I can really struggle with that. And anytime you lead anything, you're going to get pushback, whether it be a church or you got a radio show or maybe you're out there and you've got a business or whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and a lot of times when there is criticism, when there is pushback, because I've also told you that I enjoy uh, when people are happy with me, when there is kind of calm waters. Uh, and so some people really love to lean into criticism, love to lean into it, and they and they enjoy kind of the working it out. I, on the other hand, just to be honest with you, it, it tends to raise a lot of anxiety in me, and I can kind of uh, not know what to do with it. And, and I bring that up because over at Church Leaders, uh, churchleaders.com, uh, an author by the name of Charles Stone, he wrote what I found to be helpful as I've described kind of my bent, kind of uh, how how I kind of uh, deal with anxiety and criticism and other things. Charles Stone wrote this just the other day, how to be a non-anxious presence in the faith, in the face of criticism, how to be a non-anxious presence in the face of criticism. And again, I think this is written to church leaders. It's at churchleaders.com. I think it's written to pastors. Uh, but I think a lot of what he talks about here uh, goes for any criticism you take, any of that that you face, whether you're, you know, a lawyer, a teacher, uh, a businessman, whatever else you might be. How do you be a non-anxious presence in the face of criticism, again, describing how kind of I deal with criticism, I found this to be not just helpful, but just needed. Uh, and so he says this, criticism hurts, especially the non-constructive kind. We tend to stay away from such critics, but is that the wisest choice? Should we draw close to them instead of pulling away from them? In this post, Charles writes, I explore the idea of not shutting your critics. Murray Bauman, father of family systems, coined the phrase non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence describes a personal quality that when a leader exhibits it can keep a family or a group's overall emotional reactivity and anxiety down. He and others suggest that leaders should not cut off their critics, but should actually stay connected to them in a calm way. So that's a fascinating kind of premise. Uh, I get that when you when you get criticism, oftentimes the move is get away from me, Satan. 
<laughs> get behind me, Satan. Often the move is I need to move. I need to get as far away from these people as possible. Why? Because, uh, you know, we, we say things like, oh, it's just going to hold back the mission or it's going to, um, you know, it's going to just be a burden on me. But, but this premise here is that we could be a, a, a non-anxious presence and that we can stay connected to them in a calm way. Now, there are some critics, obviously, that will be toxic. There are some people who will be toxic in our lives and we need the boundaries. But also, I don't think I think what he's getting at here is it's not helpful just to surround ourselves solely and only with people who agree with everything that we say, who are only going to cheer us on, who are only going to give you the yeah, there, there you goes, that a boy. Uh, but instead uh, to be a, a, a pushback. And so he says, what does a non-anxious presence in a leader look like? How to be a non-anxious person in the face of criticism. He says, "Can uh, that type of person can truly listen to another, even if he or she is bearing bad news or criticism. That person can hold his emotions in check when in the hot seat. That person seldom gets defensive. That person can acknowledge the emotions of his critic. And that person will calmly and courageously respond instead of reacting. That is the type of leader that I want to follow, quite frankly. Somebody who can sit around the table and hear pushback and truly listen, even if it's bad news, and keep their emotions, not always get defensive. He tells the story of Ernest Shackleton, one of the greatest explorers ever, who modeled this as he and his crew were marooned in Antarctica for over a year in 1915 and 1916, his calm presence and his drawing toward difficult crew members allowed him to lead them all to safety. Nobody perished. Nobody at all perished. So how can we present? Here's the, here's the 60, maybe only I need to hear this. Maybe you're listening and be like, this is, I need to hear this. Cause when I get criticized, especially within the church context, I can get really defensive. What's their problem? What's their problem? And, and if you're listening to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about Mark Driscoll in kind of a different way, but you can see how uh, Driscoll just kind of, he used that imagery of running over with the bus, people who were his critics. This last episode was all about the people on his elder board that he just sidelined and fired and got rid of. And so he says this, Charles Stone writes this, here's five ideas uh, about how can we present a non-anxious presence to those who are our critics. He says, one, when criticized, truly try to understand the critic's perspective. When someone criticizes, thank them for sharing it. Ask questions, as also goes along with it. Number three, keep a good sense of humor. Don't allow the criticism to suck the life from you. Number four, spend some social time with the critic so he can get to know you. Share some of your personal story. Number five, do something thoughtful for your critic, something that he or she would not expect for you. As counterintuitive as this may seem, staying calmly connected to your critics can actually help you grow as a leader and move your church or organization forward. At what point do you believe you should draw the line of criticism? That is, when should you cut it off before it truly damages you? Like That's a really hard question and one that I wanted to leave us with because, again, there are times for boundaries. There are times where it's just not healthy for us, but it's also not healthy for us to always have people in our life cheering us on, telling you you're the best, great job. How do we walk this line as pastors and as leaders? I think it's a great question to ask, and Charles Stone here gives some great responses. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about two things. One, I want to talk about a local school that was going to push back against the governor's mask mandate, but then quickly changed course. I think this is kind of an interesting story that may be a window to where we are heading. And then secondly, the new prayer tool for Facebook is getting praise and doubts. We're going to talk about those two stories next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how do we live with joy in the midst of suffering? We're going to discuss that mystery. And then we're joined by Richard Buckley, Regional Vice President for Corporate Chaplains of America. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Friday the 13th. I forgot that it was Friday the 13th. My producer uh, reminded me, and uh, that explains all the craziness of the day. Uh, it reminds me of that famous Michael Scott line on The Office. Like some of you are like, oh, I don't believe that. He said, you know, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little bit stitious. So uh, <laughs> that's how Friday the 13th works. <laughs> you always uh, come up against some craziness. Friday the 13th, glad that you're with us. As we've been saying, hopefully you have a great weekend planned, a nice Friday night, maybe with your family or friends, some relaxation ahead of you. Uh, Facebook introduced something very interesting the other day. It's this, the new prayer tool for Facebook groups, and it draws both praise and doubts. Uh, let me just tell you the background of this, because I think this is something you're going to start to see on Facebook. It says, Facebook already asked for your thoughts. Now it wants your prayers. The social media giant has rolled out a new prayer request feature, a tool embraced by some religious leaders as a cutting edge way to engage the faithful online. Others are eyeing it warily as they weigh its usefulness against the privacy and security concerns they have with Facebook. In Facebook groups, uh, employing the feature, members can use it to rally prayer power for upcoming job interviews, illnesses, other challenges, big and small. And after they create a post, other users can tap on the I prayed button, respond with a like or other reaction, leave a comment or send a direct message. They began testing it in the U.S. in December as part of an, of an ongoing effort Facebook is making to support faith communities, according to a state a company spokesman. They said, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen many faith and spirituality communities using our services to connect. So we're starting to explore new tools to support them. And so as with anything, there's there's a lot of people who are excited about that. Uh, there's a lot of people who are um, not so excited about this, who are uh, skeptical of this because of the way Facebook uses data uh, and other things. But uh, it's interesting. Facebook saying, hey, and and I wonder how churches will use this in particular, because what it seems like is you got your Bible study, you got your whole church, you've got your youth group, whatever else it might be, uh, may be able to form a Facebook group as a way of sharing prayer requests and uh, things that, that they need help with or whatever else. And then people can acknowledge, I prayed for you or ask questions or whatever else. Let me remind you, when you tell, even when you're in person with somebody and you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, actually pray for them. Actually take time to pray for them. But maybe this is a next version, a next iteration of what a lot of us grew up with, the old school prayer chain where people would call the other next person and they would call the next person and uh, share prayer requests and pray. So coming to you, the Facebook groups, the I prayed button. We'll see if this becomes commonplace, kind of mainstream, or if this is something that comes and goes. Uh, but there is that. I want to talk about a different story that is local here. As we know, um, the governor a week or so ago uh, put out a proclamation, a mask mandate for all schools, private and public, with really no wiggle room. So uh, they said all schools, private and public, must mask their kids to start the year, whether they're vaccinated or not. And this, um, you know, this discouraged a lot of people. But I think <clears throat> for public schools, my kids go to the public school. For public schools, this was where we were trending anyway. So it wasn't that big a deal. But the question became, what will the private schools do? And kind of close, somewhat close to where I live, there's a school called Timothy Christian. Timothy Christian is a grade school slash middle school and then also a high school. And earlier this week, uh, the superintendent named Matt Davidson of Timothy Christian uh, put out a video that to his uh, school community that said, uh, after much reflection, discussion and prayer, that they were going to stick to their health plan, which is mask optional. Well, the state of Illinois swung back and swung back hard as the Illinois State Board of Education took action to revoke recognition of the school. Uh, they said, we don't take action lightly, uh, but that they had no other thing that they could do. And so what that means is by revoking their recognition, 
that the school could no longer play in IHSA sports, that even the state would not recognize the diplomas that students uh, graduating seniors had from Timothy or have this year from Timothy Christian uh, and other things. There's uh, some scholarship. The uh, both high school and elementary school would lose access to the invest in, in kids tax scholarship program. They'd be ineligible to play in Illinois elementary school sports. Uh, so it's a big deal. A really big deal. The loss of recognition, as I said, had to do with sports, diplomas, everything. And so Timothy Christian yesterday upon this news said, okay, we're going to reverse course and have masks. But now the state of Illinois has not made clear that yet that they will even lift the penalty because of Timothy's original move. Man, this felt like a big swing by the state of Illinois. And we're going to see what happens here because Timothy was kind of leading the way. But I think there's probably other private schools, other private schools that are saying, oh, we're going to stay mask optional. We're going to stay. The state of Illinois is saying, we're not giving you that option if you want to be recognized by the state of Illinois. The school says that it is troubled by the Illinois State Board of Education's harsh action of immediate revocation of recognition especially because the first day of school is not until August 25th. Nevertheless, based on the current situation, Timothy has determined that it will follow the executive order and and see one another's unmasked faces outside. So a really fascinating story. This was on the cover of the Daily Herald. This is getting lots of news uh, as the governor and the Illinois State Board of Education really came out swinging and said, hey, we are not giving you the option uh, this felt like the most heavy handed, the hardest that they've come down. And I'm really interested to see the reaction to this and to see where we go from here. So thought those were two interesting stories. The Facebook I Prayed app uh, group and the uh, this huge move against Timothy Christian, seeing where that plays out next. Well, coming up next, Richard Buckley, Regional Vice President for Corporate Chaplains of America. He is going to join us to talk about what is the Corporate Chaplains of America and what is the fruit that they're seeing in this ministry? Richard Buckley is going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined right now by the Regional Vice President for Corporate Chaplains of America. His name is Richard Buckley. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. And well, here's how I'd love to start, Richard. I'd love for you just to introduce yourself. Uh, tell us about yourself, who you are, and then tell us a little bit more about Corporate Chaplains of America. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Richard Buckley, I live in Huntsville, Alabama. I've been married for 33 years to my sweetheart, Amy. Uh, we have four uh, Children, they're just stepping into our empty nest years, and mm-hmm. so I do quite a bit of traveling. My wife travels with me some. I was just in Chicago this past week uh, representing our, our ministry at Corporate Chaplains of America. Uh, we have been around for 25 years, and to this point, we serve about 660 companies with over 2,000 locations in 47 states, Wow! serving half a million employees and their families. Uh, Every type of company and every size company you could ever think of, including public and privately held companies. Oh, that's fascinating. How exactly does the ministry work? Uh, How is it that you are serving these companies? Right. So our founder, Dr. Mark Kress, was a business owner. And 25 years ago, he was, you know, he he loved his employees, but he had a business to run. And he realized he could do one or the other well. Uh, And so he sold his business. He he went to seminary. Uh, he, He... started with about three companies to serve, and that has grown over the years. And so what we do is we develop relationships with business owners uh, to care for their employees. And we talk with them, we sign a simple agreement, and then we, we come in and do a brief orientation to let employees know why we're there. Mm. Uh, and so we like to say, you know, most of you have heard of a hospital chaplain or mm-hmm. a military chaplain we do the same thing they do. We just happen to do it in the workplace. Yeah. People are going to spend 90,000 hours of their life. 
Wow. And and who are your chaplains? Are they like full-time people going into businesses or are these pastors kind of doing this uh, as a ministry? What what do most of your chaplains look like? Yeah, the, the distinctive of what we do is that we have a full-time model. And so 86% of the employees that we serve are served by a full-time chaplain. Wow. Uh, you know, crises don't make appointments and we feel it's important <laughs> to be able to be there uh, and very laser focused on what we're doing. And so we only do chaplaincy. Uh, a lot of our team were missionaries, were uh, uh, pastors or other types of chaplains. Uh, but when they come on our team, our goal is to get them full time as soon as possible so they can be laser focused. So we look for people who have seven to 10 years of real world work experience so they can mm. relate to all types of employees. Uh, we look for people who have a master's in divinity uh, from a seminary because we get spiritual questions all day long. Yeah. Uh, and we look for people who just love being around other people, that they're filled up by that. They lo- they have a servant's heart and, and they enjoy the back and forth of not really knowing what's going to happen that day as they step into different companies. Yeah. And so when a chaplain steps into a company, it's a fascinating model. This is re- I'm sure a lot of people out there are like, yeah, this makes sense, but I've never really thought about this or heard of it. Uh, so how do a day-to-day chaplain, like how do they work? Is it bigger groups? Or is it meeting one-on-one with people? And, and do most businesses say, yes, please just come in and meet with people, kind of have a run of the office to, uh, to kind of care for people? Sure. Great question. Well, you know, we are, most of what we do is one-on-one. So once we do an orientation and we start making rounds at next week, we're, we're going in, we're developing caring relationships. You know, people aren't really uh, going to open up until they know that you care for them, that you know yeah. their name, that you remember things. And so when they tell us, uh, you know, they start, usually start out small. They'll, they'll tell you something small. And if you remember that, if you're praying for them, if, if you mention it to them again, then they start opening up a little more. And and then when, not if, that big thing happens in their life, hmm. you know, maybe it's a surgery, maybe it's a diagnosis they didn't anticipate, maybe it's a loss of a loved one or an aging parent, when that day comes, we're there uh, standing in front of them uh, with a relationship built. Uh, so if you compare us to our utilization to, say, an employee assistance plan or an EAP, an EAP's assist, uh, utilization is usually around 4%. Our utilization is like 87% hmm. uh, where employees will have at least one care session. We call them with us over the course of the year. Most employees will have many, many more than that. Oh, wow. And and so we're, <laughs> I must said we're coming out of a pandemic. Now it doesn't necessarily <laughs> feel like we're coming out of this pandemic anymore, but <laughs> we're somewhere in the midst of just a, uh, a seismic an event of this COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of businesses Almost all businesses have been working remotely and doing that. I guess it's a two-part question. How has that changed what you guys have been able to do? Has it been mostly Zoom and other things? And then two, I think more importantly, what have you guys been seeing in the business world as everything has just uh, gone crazy through this pandemic? Right. So, you know, when we all got locked down and, and, you know, we couldn't go into companies because no one was at the company, uh, we, we had to get very creative. Mm-hmm. And so we hire very relational people, uh, but they weren't necessarily, you know, technology gurus and they didn't have their own YouTube channels and all those kind of things. And so we had to come up with a way to, to quickly train them. And our team are so proud of them. They embraced it. And, you know, it happened in little ways, like a chaplain going to a hospital and realizing, oh, they're not going to let me in. Mm. Well, I'll just FaceTime with this person or I'll Zoom with them, yeah. uh, or I'll use our My Chaplain app where I can text them, email them, uh, or whatever. And people just started figuring it out. And, and then we started, you know, chaplains would do a Vimeo or uh, create a YouTube channel, and they blast it out to all the employees with permission uh, from the company owners. And, you know, we actually added a new tool to our arsenal. And so relationships got deeper. We actually had a guy, uh, a chaplain, read a bedtime story uh, to uh, a family's children. Mm. And this particular father was upset because um, his, his spouse was sheltering in place with someone else during the lockdown. Mm. He was very upset. And the child yeah. was talking to him about that. And he said, you know, I'm so upset tonight. I can't even share my, the bedtime story with my kids. Will you do it, Mr. Chaplain? 
Well, he wow. did it. And then the father was so touched that that father recommitted his life to the Lord as a result of that conversation. So we've had so much wonderful uh, ministry fruit come out of this. And then when we stepped back into these companies, it took on a whole new dimension. Oh, that's powerful. Uh, with the last minute or so that we have, maybe a business owner uh, is or someone who, you know, who runs a business is listening right now and they're going, man, I really want that for my for my organization. Uh, what's the process? How can people get in touch with you guys and what does that process look like? Sure. It's just as simple as going to chaplain.org uh, and saying, I'd like to talk to someone and uh, I'll be glad to talk to them. Our field development team will do that as well. Uh, or if they talk, like to talk to someone, they can call area area code 919-570-0700. Again, Richard Buckley is the Regional Vice President for Corporate Chaplains of America. You can learn more, as he said, at chaplain.org. That's chaplain.org. Richard, this is fascinating. I really love what you guys are doing. Thanks for spending some time with us and sharing about Corporate Chaplains of America. Absolutely. My pleasure, Brian. Yeah, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I want to listen to a clip here from something that Pastor John Piper said. John Piper, well-known pastor, uh, used to be pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, but also a prolific writer, speaker, everything. I, you, if you're around the Christian world, you know of John Piper, whether you uh, appreciate and um, agree with his theology or not. And uh, John Piper uh, was speaking about something that is one of the most difficult and um, paradoxical uh, parts of the Bible, uh, concepts in the Bible. And that is the call in the midst of suffering to have joy. Uh, he talks, they talk here uh, in part of this clip uh, before the part that we're going to listen to about Paul's words to the Corinthians that even in his suffering, he's always rejoicing. And there's this paradox that for the Christ follower, uh, in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice. And it reminds us of the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians uses the word joy or rejoice more times than anywhere else in the Bible, the book of Philippians. In many ways, people will tell you when they write about the book of Philippians that the that the undercurrent, that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, is rejoicing. And what makes that, again, so paradoxical is that the Apostle Paul is uh, believed to be chained to a prison wall when, when writing or having somebody else write his words in the book of Philippians. And so he says things like, rejoice always, I say it again, rejoice, uh, rejoice in the Lord. He says that while chained to a Roman prison, unsure of what's coming next. This could be his, he could be dying at any point. And the question becomes, how? That's the ultimate question of the book of Philippians. How, in the midst of suffering and sadness and loss and imprisonment, how can Paul over and over and over again talk about joy, talk about rejoicing, Talk about all of this stuff. With that in mind, I want you to hear this begin. This is a beginning to a much longer talk, but let's hear the beginning of what John Piper had to say. The conclusion goes like this. So God is so sovereign over the disasters and the disappointments of, of our lives that he is able to make every one of them serve our everlasting joy. He is so sovereign over all the disasters, all the disappointments of our lives that he is able to take all all of them, and make all of them serve our everlasting joy. This sovereign grace is the ground of your joy in sorrows. Not after sorrows, but in the sorrows of deep disappointment. So the Christian hedonist does not merely pursue joy after sorrow. He pursues joy in sorrow, in disappointment. So the watchword of your life then becomes sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing. So John Piper talks about uh, joy only being possible in the midst of suffering on one hand when we realize that uh, God is so sovereign that he can use our suffering for our eternal joy. Again, this doesn't mean that the bad things that happen to us are good all of a sudden. That's not what this is saying. This does not say mean that the brokenness of this world is not hard to navigate, but this is a matter of perspective that, that even in the midst of my suffering, whatever your suffering might be, even in the midst of your suffering, you can have a perspective that says God is sovereign. God is good. This world is not all that there is. And in this world, he says, I will be with you always, that I'm near to the brokenhearted, that I will be, uh, I will be with you always, that God is with us to provide things like peace, perspective, power, whatever else it is that we need, his presence. Lots of peace there. That was quite the pastoral move there. Uh, but also, that we could have the perspective. It's in the book of Philippians where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had this perspective that said, for as long as I am on this earth, for me to live is Christ. For me, everything about this is, is Jesus. And to die is gain. Paul says, hey, if they do kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be home. And that's to my gain. But as long as I am here, I'm going to do everything I can to live for Christ, to tell people about Jesus, to live out how he's called us to live, to know him more deeply. And, and Paul's basically in the, in the book of Philippians saying, as I take on that perspective, the hardships of this world do not become primary and overbearing because I've got a kind of a win-win situation here. And Piper basically says the same thing, that, that we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is at work. And that even in the midst of suffering, we could take a perspective that says, uh, God's with me, God's sovereign, and even into eternity, this is even going to increase my joy because I'm going to be in a place where there's no more tears, no more death, no more sickness, no more sin. It's all a matter of perspective. And again, this is not to minimize suffering. People misuse that, that, that verse in the Bible that says, uh, God uses all things for his good to, as if like our suffering is good. No, no, it doesn't say our, 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 uh, God says that all things are good. Like it doesn't say that our suffering is good, but it says that God can use these things, even the broken things, the painful things of this world to reveal to us things about himself to make us very cognizant of his presence and to give us that long-term eternal perspective again, that maybe we have a hard time seeing in the midst of our prosperity and comfort. C.S. Lewis famously said uh, that God whispers to us in our pleasure, uh, but that is that our pain is God's megaphone. And so I want to give you, especially if you're out there and you're struggling today and, you know, uh, maybe your health is deteriorating. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Uh, maybe you lost a job. Maybe you're just suffering. You're struggling with depression and mental illness, whatever else it might be. Maybe a relationship has broken down. I do not want to minimize those things. Those things are terribly difficult. And I'm sorry that you're going through them. But I also want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you to Jesus who says, I am with you so we can turn to him. And then he also says in, in, you know, in the life to come, uh, in, in, in eternity, there's not going to be any more pandemic. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more brokenness and sin. And because of that, we can hold on for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the one of the great paradoxes of our temporal life here, the mystery of joy in the midst of suffering, but especially for those of you who are suffering right now. I want to encourage you with that. Well, coming up next, I'm going to read a tweet from somebody who we've had on the show before, Christine Kane. Just want to encourage us as we head into the weekend next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Hopefully, you're looking forward to a great weekend. Monday, we'll be back with you. My co-host, Aubrey Sampson, will be back from vacation. We're looking forward to having Aubrey back. Uh, but until then, we're just going to close this out the way we close out a lot of our shows. Wherever it's been, we're going on a couple years now where we try to end every show with a little bit of either encouragement, inspiration, challenge, something to take you into the weekend or into your night to just kind of be thinking about. And uh, oftentimes we take those things right off of Twitter, just tweets from thing, from people that we greatly respect that keep us thinking. And one of those people, she's been on the show before a couple times now, Christine Kane, founder of Propel Women, also uh, A21. Um, she wrote a book called How Did I Get Here uh, is her most recent book. So Christine Kane is just a prolific um, author, speaker, just follower of Jesus. She's a, she's quite the uh, the force and somebody that we should all be uh, listening to and reading. And Christine Kane wrote this uh, yesterday on Twitter that I thought would serve as kind of just a a nice end to something to talk about as we head into our weekend. Because a lot of us struggle, quite frankly, with what she writes about here. Christine Kane writes this. Uh, she tweeted this: "Your life matters to God. Your joy matters to God. Your cares matter to God. Your pain matters to God." Your hopes matter to God. Your sorrow matters to God. Your questions matter to God. Your aspirations matter to God. And she closes it this way. You matter to God. I just, let me read that one more. Well, let's talk about it. And then I'll read it again at the end. This is such an important word. I think because a lot of us struggle to believe that we matter to God. The overarching theme here of what Christine Kane writes is that you matter to God. And, and I do think we struggle with this because we look around and we go, is everything just random? Am I just one of a billion, two billion people? And why, why, if I'm that insignificant, why would God care about just me? Why would I matter? It's one thing to say all of humanity matters to God, but, but could I really matter? Me matter? To God, does he really care about my joys and my sorrows, my pains and my hopes? And then we open up God's word and, 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 and we start to understand the things he says about us and who we are. We talk about this often, but in Christ, it says, I'm a child of God. You know what? A lot of uh, I'm a dad and I've got three kids and I can describe this in a lot of different ways about my kids. Uh, but one of uh, the things that I can definitively say about my children is that they matter to me. They matter to me. Everything about them matters to me. If you ask my kids, sometimes you would they, they might tell you that they matter too much to me and my wife, that we're too concerned and interested in what's going on with them. But but by the nature of being my children, my, my children matter to me. How much more do we matter to our, our perfect heavenly father who says to us, you are my child. That's your identity in Christ. You are a child of God. We've been created in his image. We're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. You didn't just come rolling off some assembly line. But instead, we read that, that, that our Heavenly Father knit us together in our mother's womb, that before we were even born, he knew us, that you matter that much to him. And ultimately, there is, uh, there is one thing, uh, there is one reason that we can definitively declare that our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, that we matter to him. And it's this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we matter so much to our Heavenly Father that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to rise again. Why? So that you and I might have forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life with our Heavenly Father. Grasp that, friends. That what our 
Heavenly Father has done for us in Jesus Christ screams that you matter to him. It screams that you're important, that he loves you, that you're not just some random disposable human being, but you're a child of God, knit together by your heavenly father, known before even uh, you were born, loved so much that Jesus came and lived, laid down his life for you and for me. You matter. We talked earlier in the show that one of the difficult places for us to see this is when life is hard. Christine Kane writes that your pain matters to God. Your sorrow matters to God. Your questions matter to God. And so often we will, in the difficult times of life, we will take those as signs that God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. God has forgotten about me. God is actually not present in all of these things. But no, the Bible tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. That those, that it is the marginalized and it is the struggling, it is the broken, that those are the people that Jesus was drawn to when he was here on this earth and that we still matter to him, that our questions matter to him. Again, this all goes back to our identity, that if we think we have to impress our heavenly father, that we have to earn his love for us, that we are, that, that our, his love for us and our, our significance to him is all conditional, then that is a terrible way to live. It is one that will just put us in a bad spot. But if we realize that we are loved unconditionally in Christ, that we are known more deeply than we could ever, that we are knit together, that we are God's children, then we will embrace that. We will live with that freedom and we will follow after him. And then we will go to him in prayer and we will cry out our questions and our cares and our hopes and our aspirations, and our dreams. Such an important word. And I want to leave you today as you go into your weekend, just asking simply, do you believe that you matter to God? Do you believe that you matter to God? Let me read again Christine Kane's tweet as we close. Your life matters to God. Your joy matters to God. Your cares matter to God. Your pain, it matters to God. Your hopes matter to God. Your sorrow matters to God. Your questions matter to God. Your aspirations matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. Take that as good news as you head into your weekend. I'm really glad that you joined us again. Aubrey, thankfully, she will be back with us on Monday. As we start off a new week, we hope that you join Aubrey and I from four until six on Monday. Until then, we hope that you have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us today and all week. My name is Brian Fromm, and you have been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.